0: If you're watching online, welcome, glad that you're with us. People watching on various platforms like uh, YouTube and Facebook, Um, glad that you're here and we're going to dive into Romans 14 together. I'm going to pray with you in just a minute but I'm going to ask you if you have your Bible go ahead and turn there now as I uh, talk to you about what you're about to look at here in the beginning. I want to pray with you um, not only because this starts out really intensely but a song like that um, is very compelling. Because it sounds like we're being invited into an adventure. And the reality is, we are. We'd all like to do what Peter did when he was called out upon the water to walk to Jesus in the middle of a sea. But the reality is that God has to do heart surgery on each of us along the way. He has to correct us and make sure that we're in that place where He can use us so that we're ready for the adventure when it comes. And that's what you're going to find Romans 14 is about this morning. So as you're turning there, as you're, maybe you've got it on your phone or maybe you've got a hard copy or perhaps you don't own a copy. There's free copies of the Bible in the back. I'd love for you to pick one up on your way out this morning. I want to frame our thinking so that we're ready to see what God has to say this morning in this way. What we're about to start out with is a really intense passage. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he hasn't been arrested yet, but he knows that he's going to be. Judas has already betrayed him, and he understands what's coming. His heart is completely ready for what God has called him to do. God the Son is in concert with God the Father, and they're carrying out the plan that's been laid from the foundation of the earth, and there's something that's heavy on his heart, before he actually executes it. With that thought in mind, let's go into prayer and ask God to shape our thinking as we examine this passage. Father, I thank you for every single person in this auditorium and watching online right now, that we can be in this place where you would speak to us and you're doing it through your written word and we get to travel back in time and we get to understand what was written for our benefit for this very day. Father, I know that you intend to use us, you want to use us, even if we feel incapable and unworthy. It might be in the simplest fashion, even yet today, you would use us in some way. Prepare our hearts to be shaped along that line of thinking that we want to be used and do what you have to do to put our mind in that place where we're ready to surrender to your purposes and your will. We pray for that as we look at what Paul wrote in Romans 14. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to get a view here of what I would call a deathbed prayer because Jesus is on His deathbed. And I've been in the room before when people are about to die. And I know that those last few paragraphs that come out of their mouth, they're precious. There's probably nothing more that the family hangs on to than someone's deathbed thoughts. You you just want to hang in there a little bit longer, and you can believe that someone on their deathbed is saying something of such importance, there's, there's no beguiling in it, there's no lie in it, there's no deception. It's pure honesty, and this is what's coming out of John 17, 20. This is Jesus, if you will, on his deathbed. John 17, 20, look with me on the screen. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, and he's talking about the disciples who gathered with him in the garden, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's that's you, New Hope. The things that they would write down, those who will believe in me through their word, the disciples will write down the things about Jesus known as the gospels. And they will write down what they've experienced. And Jesus is praying for you 2,000 years ago. He knows this moment in time is arriving. And he's praying for those also who are going to believe in me through their word. What? Verse 21. That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. It doesn't get any bigger than that. I mean, talk about putting the weight on us. The weight is that we would get along so that the world will believe, because how can a world that needs a Savior believe if all they see is infighting and friction and adversity? If you agree with this statement, say amen. We live in a day and age when it's really easy to offend people. It's like, duh, right? I don't know if that was true 100 years ago. Maybe it was, but I know that in our generation, in this day and age, it's really easy to tick people off. Well, in an era when it's incredibly easy to offend other people, we've discovered by looking back 2,000 years in time that the book of Romans is going to speak to this modern day issue about offending people. And the remarkable thing is the church is an incredibly ripe environment for adversity. It's easy to offend in a setting like this. We are the most remarkable mixture of people known to humanity for this reason. There's one common thing that unites us, but our diversity is so vast. Our education, our age, our cultural background. People who attend New Hope who are, for instance, from areas like China or or from areas in South America or India or from the Midwest or from the Deep South or from Southern California. We're different in our culture, we're different in our background, we're different in our education, we're different in our styles of worship. It's one of the most remarkable things about New Hope is God has blended all of these individuals together. Some discovered the love of Christ while they were in the midst of substance abuse. For others, substance abuse would be too much mocha, right? We don't know substance abuse. And and there's this blend of individuals that meet together every single week. Geographically, we're so different. And don't get me started on the difference between MSU fans and U of M fans. It's, It's vast. And that kind of diversity can be and is used by Satan to create division. Here's an example for you. Two of the most famous pastors, powerful preachers, who ever walked this planet, lived in the 1800s in London, England. Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. And they're best buds. They were inseparable as young men. They exchanged each other's pulpits. They went to dinner together. Their wives hung out together until they didn't. Until Charles Spurgeon found out that Joseph Parker went to the theater. And I'm not talking about NCG. Right? there wasn't existing. The cinema didn't exist at that time. He went to like what you would go to at the Wharton Center to see stage plays. And Charles Spurgeon really had a problem with that and told him, how could you be a spiritual leader of the church and go to the theater? Ungodly things happen there. You associate yourself with those people and you're becoming unspiritual. Joseph, well, Joseph knew things about Charles, that Charles loved to occasionally tip back a bottle of whiskey, and he knew that he really pounded down the cigars. And Charles loved to eat, and he overate a lot. And so those two went at it, and they went back and forth, and it made it into the newspapers. And London began publishing things about those two individuals and the friction between the two of them. And the public was left to wonder, well, who's right? Who's wrong in this situation? And it created division. When it comes to non-eternal matters... Why can't believers agree to disagree without fuming over issues like that? Well, the reality is disunity has always been a problem in the church. The Old Testament records all the family fights. The New Testament records churches who couldn't get along. The Corinthian leaders, they're divided over who should be the leaders, and they began suing each other. The church at Philippi, you got two women who are raging, and they begin splitting the church. And the church at Galatia, Scripture says they're biting and devouring one another. What's going on there? Well, it's taking them off mission. No wonder Jesus on his deathbed is praying that we would be one because all that stands in contrast to Psalm 133. Look with me on the screen at verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So Jesus on the night that he's arrested finds himself with a deathbed prayer. God the Son talking to God the Father. And Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. One group finds themselves thinking the other is not spiritual and they begin fighting. That's the truth of the believers in Rome. Paul's writing about them. Some thought it was a sin to eat meat and ate only vegetables. Others thought it's a sin not to observe the Jewish calendar and so they they carried it out to the nth degree. If each group had just kept their convictions to themselves, wouldn't have been any problem. But the problem came when they began trying to impose it on other people and make other people follow their way of living. Understand that Romans is 14 is not speaking of doctrinal compromise. It's talking about the non-essentials, individuals who don't understand they've got freedom in Christ. Let me illustrate it for you this way before we dive into the first verse. I read of an Amish farmer who became a believer in Jesus. Not all Amish are believers in Jesus. It's a a lifestyle they choose to follow. But this particular Amish farmer became a believer in Jesus, and he understood that he had freedom in Christ. But he didn't want to offend his neighbors who were still Amish. So he thought, well, I'm gonna exercise my freedom. And he went out and he bought himself a car. But he bought it during the daytime. However, he arranged for it to be delivered to his home at night. And he had the dealer deliver it to his barn, and he hid it in his barn. And at nighttime, he would go out and start his car up and sit in the car and listen to the radio. Another no-no in the Amish world, right? What's going on there? He was so afraid of the external convictions that other people had, he would not exercise his freedom in Christ. And so he's got these self-imposed restrictions on his life. And it's amazing how we can transfer those things over to other people. So Paul writes with that in verse 1 in mind. Go with me to verse 1 now. He says, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now You might think when you read that, when he says weak in faith, he's talking about people who are immature in Christ, who are new believers. That's not what he's talking about here. Let's go first to that word accept. It's one of four Greek words in your notes this morning. It would really help you if you pulled your notes out of your bulletin, especially this morning, so you can follow along that way. But you'll see this Greek word up on the screen, prosolambano. This is really important to you because this is a word that applies to your walk with Christ. Prosolambano actually means to take someone to themselves. The imagery comes to us from Acts chapter 28. Maybe you've read the book of Acts before. But there's a shipwreck there's a ship traveling through the Mediterranean, and it hits a storm, and it begins breaking apart. Well, the survivors all make it to the island of Malta. Paul is among them. And as they crawl up onto the shore, their ship is destroyed, but they survive the storm. The people of the island of Malta, we're told according to Acts 28, built fires for them on the beach and received them to themselves, Prosolumbano. They took them to themselves. So when he writes this in Romans 14, he says, this is a command, it's not a suggestion. It comes from God that you would receive weak Christians. Well, who's the weak Christian? What's he talking about here? He's describing this as a person who doesn't enjoy their freedom that they have in Jesus. They're so busy judging other individuals, and in return, they cause the strong Christians to begin to despise them. So Paul starts out first by writing to the strong Christians in verse 1. You consider yourself a strong believer, that you enjoy your freedom in Christ? He's writing to you. He's writing to you and saying, you who are strong, you've got to receive those who are weak. You understand your liberty. You understand you're not enslaved to legalism. Who is this weak person? Well, first of all, he says it's a temporary condition. The word is, it's written in a present tense in the Greek language, meaning it's something that's present, but it's not always going to be present. They're weak now. So who's who's the weak Christian? That's the one that's got these unfounded codes in their life on matters of secondary importance. In other words, they're a legalist without any basis. I've often thought about Peter, the first time somebody put a piece of ham in front of him. And told him, it's okay, Peter, you can eat it. How hard would that be if all your life you've been told as a Jewish person, you're not supposed to eat certain foods because it'll make you unholy? Well, that's what Peter's facing. Can you imagine being a Jewish person who became a believer in Jesus and you're now in the church and you're told that Jesus has set you free? You're free to enjoy all these things. How hard would it be if you've eaten kosher foods all your life and all of a sudden you're told you can eat the non-kosher ones? He says those are weak individuals who are playing on their old legalistic practices. And he says you've got to receive the one who's weak in faith. And we discover the first reason to receive those persons is because they're fellow believers. They've been accepted by God just like us. He received us too. Look with me on the screen, Romans 15.7. We're not in the chapter 15 yet, but we're going to be there by the month of May, I'm pretty sure. Romans 15.7, therefore, here's that word, prosalambano, therefore accept one another just as Christ has also prosalambano you. He's accepted you. He brought you to himself. That's why Paul's using these words here. So the very first principle you find in your notes this morning is that we accept or we receive a weaker Christian not with the idea of engaging them in disputes and arguments about legalism. And he says, why? In verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables. I could have so much fun with that one, right? (laughs) And the word only, that's not even in the original text. It was transferred in for modern English language. So he who is weak eats vegetables. And I tried using that on my mom when I was a teenager, telling mom that I didn't have to eat broccoli because scripture says if you eat vegetables, you're weak. But that's not what it's saying, all right? I want to help you with that. You might be looking at that and thinking, Paul, why are you hating on vegetarians, man? What's going on here? Well, if that's how you're hearing him, you need a broader picture. First know this, he's not hating on veggies. That's not what's going on. Here's a perspective for you. Um, An example would be this. God told Peter to go to the Gentiles and talk about Jesus. Now, Peter's a Jew, and he's a believer in Jesus, and God says, I want you, Peter, to go out and spend some time with the Gentiles. So Peter does that. He travels north of Jerusalem, and he goes into Gentile territory. But the church back in Jerusalem, they hear about Peter hanging out with the Gentiles. In other words, he's eating the food they eat. And the church back in Jerusalem begins shaming him. And with peer pressure, they tell him, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're a Jew. Well, Peter recoils. And out of peer pressure, he stops hanging out with the Gentiles. And Paul actually had to admonish him. Well, before Paul did that, God admonished Peter. Peter's up on the rooftop of a house And he falls into what Scripture describes as a trance, a deep, deep sleep. And God brings a vision before him. He lets a sheet down. Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And this sheet is filled with all kinds of created beings, all kinds of animals that God has created. And he says, Peter, all the things that I've made are completely holy. We pick up this conversation mid-sentence in Acts chapter 10 on the screen. And you see it in verse 13. It says, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, no, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Verse 15, again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Verse 16, this happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. What's going on there? Well, Peter's still weak. Even though he's strong in the gospel, he's the one who's proclaiming Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem, but he's weak in certain things in his life. He's still acting weak while he's mature in other areas, and every one of us have times like that in our life. If you're new to New Hope, you might even find yourself looking around and seeing people with their Bibles open, and they're taking notes and writing things down, and you're thinking, wow, these people really take this stuff seriously. They're so much further down the trail than I am. Can I tell you that every one of us in this auditorium had a beginning point, right? We all had a place where we began. We might be a little further down the trail than some people, but maybe not as far as you think. The the reality is we all have times of weakness. And in the church, there are those who are weak and those who are strong. Paul's writing to both, and he says, the weak, they can't be legalist and condemn the strong and call them unspiritual. And the strong believers, they can't look down on the weak and call them immature, so he ends that portion by saying, the one who has faith, they can eat all things. And he's referring to the mature Christian in, who exercised freedom in Christ. A good example would be uh, if you perhaps enjoy cheesy nachos. All right? Let's say you got a big plate of cheesy nachos in front of you and it sounds really good. And Right now you're salivating, thinking, I am so ready for lunch. And then you pull out the bacon bits and be dumb, begin dumping the bacon on there. But maybe somebody across the table from you is thinking, man, that is so unhealthy. How can you be eating that? Well, You might even be tempted to push that plate of cheesy nachos aside because somebody's putting you under peer pressure at that point. Putting that stuff aside doesn't make you more holy. That's what Paul's writing about. That, that might be a health choice, but it's not a spiritual choice. It doesn't make you more holy. It doesn't make you more spiritual. The grace of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is not about ceremonial function. It's not about dietary restrictions. It's not about legalisms. It's about faith in Jesus. So Paul says this in verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. I I put the word crino there in brackets. You see that next to the word judge. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Catch the phrase regard with contempt. It's your third Greek word in your notes this morning, exothoneo. And it's actually not so important how we pronounce that, but here's the idea behind it. It has this thought of looking down on somebody. And it's attached to the judging someone. And they look down on them to the degree that they think they're less than nothing. So this isn't something that's simply disliking or disrespecting. We're talking about actually disdaining someone. Well, this was going on in the first century church. The Romans were disdaining the Jewish Christians, and the Jewish Christians were disdaining the Romans who were Gentiles. And in the culture, many of the Roman people, they had a similar attitude to various people in their population, and they actually called them barbarians because they had such disdain for them, had no use for them. Well, that transferred over into the church. Some of the new believers were totally embracing their freedom in Christ, But then the self-appointed judges popped up on the scene, and very quickly they let it be known of their disapproval, and the result was the damage to the mission of the church. It took them off purpose, off center, and they're no longer talking about Jesus, they're talking about each other. For millennia, the churches have been plagued with individuals who consider themselves spiritual judges. You ever had somebody like that in your life? You don't have to Raise your hand or say amen. You know, immediately that pops in your mind when you think of somebody who's been a judge over you. And you know that they're not supposed to be. This word krino is used as your last Greek word this morning, and that's the word judge here. And it's talking about somebody who decides in a judicial manner they actually try to condemn, as though they've got the authority to do it. So check what's going on in this setting. One person disdains and looks down on the other people. And then this person in response begins judging that person. And that's what Paul's writing about here. They're both wrong. It's like Joseph Parker and Charles Spurgeon going after each other. The church of Jesus is not a judiciary body on issues that are of no real consequence. I hope you agree with that. We're we're not here for that reason. So Paul ends verse 3 by saying, God has accepted him. And that applies to both the strong and the weak. So here's Paul's point. If God doesn't make a big issue out of these things, why do we? And we're not talking about morality here. We're not talking about doctrine. We're talking about secondary importance items. So this second principle flies out. It's in your notes. We're talking about mutual tolerance here. A maturing believer, one who's growing in Christ, is not somebody who's despising or judging a family member in Christ. If someone in your life enjoys ham or lobster or whiskey or wine, what is that to you? Why would you possibly care about that? Who are we to disapprove of the one God has approved? Why do I use whiskey? Because it's personal to me. I personally don't drink alcohol. I've I've never really had an interest in it. But my grandpa, who is a believer in Christ, he enjoyed a shot of whiskey every morning. And grandpa would knock one back and then he'd turn to me and say, Mark, it really clears your head. I have take your word for that, Grandpa. I don't know. But it didn't diminish his walk with Jesus. And I'm not going to judge him over that if God's approved him. So we're not saying, hear, hear me very clearly on this, not saying in any way that believers can engage in anything that they want to as long as they have the opinion that it's okay. What we're referring to here is not doctrine and it's not morality. We're talking about things that are of secondary interest. So in verse 4, it says, who are you to judge the servant of another. The word crino comes out again. To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Check yourself on this. I know this is true of me. This is true of my past. What is wrong for me all too easily translates over to what is wrong for everyone else. Can you identify with that? Very soon, what we're convicted about, we think everyone else should be convicted about, and we end up imposing our convictions on things where God is completely silent. Scripture says, to his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. Let's see if you agree with this statement, and I want you to get a thought in your mind around it. We, every one of us in this auditorium, everyone watching online right now, every one of us is weak, To some degree, because everything that we have comes from God. You agree with that? We'll see if you do again. I'll I'll say it again. Say amen if you agree with this. We are all weak to some degree, because everything we possess comes from God. All right? Does that make sense to you? All right. So we're all completely dependent upon him. To some degree, we're all weak because everything originates from him. So keep that thought in mind when Paul says this, who are you to judge the servant of another? What right do we have as either mature or immature believers to judge a fellow believer? If God is the source of everything and he's the only true judge, I think Paul's writing so strongly about this because it's so personal to him. You find an excerpt in the book of Corinthians where he begins writing about people who are judging him. Let me show you just an excerpt from it. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. To me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. My own conscience doesn't acquit me, Paul's saying. Why? The one who examines me is the Lord. In other words, it's to Jesus that each believer stands or falls. And every believer, he says, will pass the ultimate judgment. So Romans fourteen four says, the Lord is able to make him stand. That's one you should circle in your Bible this morning. It's a really powerful encouragement for you. The Lord will make him stand. What's he talking about here? He's talking about when you stand before the judgment seat of God, you're not going to fall. The Lord will keep you. Let me remind you of three verses you might want to write down in your notes this morning. They're going to come up on the screen really quickly. Romans 8.33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. It's a great promise, right, church? It's a huge one. Let's go to the next one, Romans eight thirty nine. There's no created thing on this planet that can separate you, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or here's another one, Jude 24, Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. So we're being reminded here, God is the master, we are the servants. And it's wrong for any of us to intrude on that relationship. Hear this so clearly. Your success in walking with Jesus is not dependent upon the attitude of another person. Right? It's not. It's dependent upon Jesus, and that's incredibly freeing. So, New Hope, I just need to remind you my role here. I'm here to equip you, not to judge you, I'm not here to put the weight on you. God does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not here to judge. That's true of all the pastors on staff. That's true of the entire staff here and all the elders that lead here. We're not here to judge. We're here to equip. God is the judge. And if he makes us stand and he makes you free, you're free indeed. You are completely free in Jesus Christ. So this is the third principle in the last one this morning, every believer is the servant of the Lord and I have no right to sit in judgment as though I'm the master. I'm not the master over anyone, I'm just a communicator of the Word. So verse 5 says this, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. There's an example coming out of what he's talking about here. These days and these foods that he's referring to. And in a couple of weeks, you're going to see he begins talking about alcohol in the same way in verses 17. And so he uses the Jews as an example. Shabbat, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, Saturday for them was completely the day in which they said they're not going to work, they're not going to do anything except worship God and rest. And so when they became believers in Jesus, the Jewish Christians wanted to carry that tradition over into the church and make everybody honor Saturday. But the Gentiles in the church said, wait, no, Sunday's the day because that's the day that Jesus rose from the grave and you got this friction going on in the church. So the Gentiles, they didn't want to honor a specific day because they attached special days of worship to sexual orgies. When they were pagans before they met Jesus, they were involved in the special days worship of orgies. So they wanted nothing to do with honoring special days. So you've got this mixture of people in one setting, and Scripture says this in Colossians 2.16, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And he's not saying, throw them away. He's simply saying, those are just foreshadows of greater things. They don't make you holy. So he ends verse 6 by saying, those who observe it, observe it for the Lord. Question. What makes a dish or a plate of food or a day holy? that a person does it between them and God. I'll help myself on this particular issue. Um, Many people don't know this at New Hope, but every weekend I begin a fast. I I eat breakfast on Saturday morning, and then I don't eat again until Sunday afternoon. So I'm kind of hungry right now. I'm just telling, yeah. So why do I do that? I do that because I've discovered that in my life with Christ, if I fast from Saturday noon till Sunday afternoon, it makes me really sharp in my focus on my attention of the word of God. And I I elevate this to such a high value of my responsibility to equip you properly that I don't want anything to distract me so I try and stay very, very focused. That's just me. I observe it for the Lord. How wrong would it be if I began to impose that conviction on you? It would be completely wrong if I said, you all have to fast because I fast, right? And last night in Saturday night service, a whole bunch of them yelled out, amen, right? Because they're getting ready to watch the MSU U of M game and they wanted their bag of potato chips, right? I I would never do that. It would be completely wrong to impose my conviction on you. That's between me and God. And in so doing, what would I be doing? I'd be asking you to go against your own conscience. So Paul writes from this twofold position. He says, don't compromise your own conscience in order to conform to other people, but don't ask other people to do the exact same thing for you to conform to your convictions. Whatever your view, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind and don't make it a test of fellowship. He's just echoing what Jesus prayed about in the garden. Now, it moves really fast as we go to close this. Verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself... For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. See, the bigger issue here is lordship. That's what he's been driving towards here. This isn't about food. It's not about days. It's not about alcohol. It's about who Jesus is, the, the lordship of Jesus who's Lord over every sphere of your life. It's true what you say or do affects other people. Everybody here at New Hope has influence over somebody to some degree, but that's not what he's driving towards here. He's emphasizing the greater goal. The greater object is how do we live out our lives in front of Jesus. To live is to honor Jesus. To die is no different. So ultimately, you're accountable to God. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. That's a theologically pregnant statement if I've ever seen one. And I want to dive into that with you next week when we start talking about the thrones and the judgment seats. We're going to get into that a little bit next week. What he's really saying here is you belong to Jesus in the fullest possible sense. If you're a believer in Jesus, you belong to him. I've known a few orphans in my life. I've known individuals who were adopted into families. And there's few things harder than not knowing your origin. Some older members in my family, some younger members in my family, people who I've come in contact with, they want to know. They they spend time in their life. They spend a lot of energy trying to figure out what is my origin? Who are those biological people I came from? There's few things that are harder than not knowing whom you belong to. What he's saying is you belong to Jesus. You belong to him fully in life and death. That is your origin. And to this end, Christ died and he lives again. He's Lord of both the dead and the living. And to deny his lordship over somebody else is to sabotage the full purpose of the resurrection and the crucifixion. Because through that, he became Lord over everyone Although the church celebrated Jesus as Savior and often talk about him in the New Testament as Savior, far more times you find them writing, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of lords, he's King of kings. Here's an example, 1 Timothy 6.15, Jesus, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he doesn't become Lord, he already is Lord. What remains is for people to acknowledge it. So His reign is not only over those who are alive, as also those who have died are subject to His authority. Therefore He's also judge of the dead. So Paul's point is well taken. Why are you making yourself judge? He already is judge, God's judge, not you. Judging is His prerogative. If I take up that role, I usurp His authority. So he ends it with this way, verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. Well, there's a heavy one. That is the only evaluation that counts. See, verse 10 states very clearly, without any ambiguity whatsoever, even believers will stand before the judgment seat. Uh, I know many people are thinking right now, wait, I thought you've told us We don't get judged. I thought that's why Jesus died. Well, that's not the judgment seat he's talking about here. This judgment has to do with actions, the actions of your behavior, not with your sin. The phrase that he actually uses here when he says in verse 10, the judgment seat, he's talking about the Bema seat. I know some of you have traveled to the Middle East and you've actually seen the ancient Roman Bema seat. You know what this is referring to. The Bema seat is where a person sat when they were ready to give out rewards for individuals who threw the javelin a really long way or raced around the track really fast in the Olympic Games of Greece. The Bema seat was the reward seat. That's the judgment seat he's talking about here. And it's from that place that Jesus sits and believers receive Their reward based on their activities, activities of what? How you served, how you provided, how you helped people. It's a reward seed. He's not talking about judging you to hell because you're a believer in Jesus. This judgment has nothing to do with sin. Jesus paid for your sin, amen? He paid for all of it. So he paid for our sin according to Romans 8.1. There's now no condemnation in Christ. So he can't be referring to the judgment of sin. Because he is Lord, each believer is going to stand, Paul writes. We're going to stand because of and before Jesus. First as our Savior and also as our judge, but a judge in a good way. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Here's a question I want to send you out the door with this morning. I'm going to ask you to chew on it for six days. What does a Christ follower do to prepare for the judgment seat of Christ? Six days you get to chew on that because I'm not going to answer it today. What do we do to prepare for that? Because this reality is, if Jesus died and was resurrected again and says, if you believe in me, you're destined for heaven. If that's true, the same one also says, but you're going to stand before me one day and you're going to give an accounting of your life. You're going to be accountable for your actions. So what do we do in this situation? How do we prepare for the Bema seat? Well, this one big reality comes out of this morning. Instead of judging other people, we make sure that we're ready to meet Jesus at the Bema seat. I've said for 10 years now, Church New Hope is a little over 10 years old, what we do day in and day out, what we do is the most accurate indicator of what we believe. I say it this way, what we do next determines what we believe about God. What you believe about God is revealed in what you do. So our responsibility is not to despise or criticize, because in the end, Jesus isn't going to sit on that seat and ask you to give an accounting of the person on your right or on your left. He's going to say, I want you to give an accounting for yourself. So verse 11 ends this way, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So you don't want to miss next week. What do we do to prepare for that, okay? I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now that God would apply to our hearts the things we've looked at this morning. Would you join me in that? We have uh, many times, Father, no real idea of what we're asking for when we ask you to invite us out on the water. To go to that place where feet humanly would fail. To ask you to bring us into an adventure. If our heart is not ready, it's not something you're going to let us do. So you do heart surgery and you work on us and you work on our attitudes. And I feel like you're doing that with our church as we get ready to step into this new building. Making sure that our hearts are aligned with you. You're going to continue to bring more and more people to this body of Christ. And how we as believers view and interact with each other has everything to do with how this community receives you, how they look at you. So we understand now why you prayed what you prayed in the garden. And we want to take that really seriously. So, Father, in our own strength, we know that we fall short and we need the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us from quickly wanting to judge each other. We know what that is. We fall into that pattern regularly. So check us on that this week, maybe even this afternoon. Remind us of the things that we've looked at today and remind us of what we need to be thinking of this week, of what it means to stand before you one day. We pray for these applications in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.